We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, so grab a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Been walking through Solomon's journal, his observations of life, and as he looked out, and the things that he saw. Maybe you've turned the, heard the phrase enigma. An enigma is a mysterious, puzzling, or something that's difficult to understand. And so in this section of Solomon's journal, he deals with the enigmas that he has seen in his observations of life. And so he starts in chapter 8, in verse 2, and he says, Obey the king's commands, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Now you can take those two verses, and you can kind of put them together. And one rendering of that could be, Observe the king's command, and do not rush into a vow with God. So what Solomon's laying out is that there are authorities in life, and you shouldn't cross these two absolute authorities. There's the king and there's God, and they both have realms of authority, but ultimately God has all authority. There are proper ways to respond to the realities of life. And Solomon tells us, you don't do whatever you feel like doing without consequences. There are consequences to our actions. And so he goes through and he says a few of those things, is about responding properly to authority in verses 3 and 4. A wise person respects authority and knows how to approach an authority figure at the right moment. No matter how bad things seem, you approach at the right time and in the right way. And he gives us a few reasons why. The king has great authority in verse 3 to do whatever he pleases. His word is supreme. Nobody can say, what are you doing he says in verse 3, therefore people should obey, don't be in a hurry to leave his presence. In other words, don't be a hur- in a hurry to, to form rebellion. Don't be rebellious or stand up for a bad cause because the king wields the sword. And so he lays out that there's some authority and some proper ways to solve that or, or respond to that. And then in verses 5 to 6, once again, he praises the value of wisdom. He says in verse 5, the wise person would know the best course of action and apply it to this proper time and procedure. He says that wisdom is necessary because we are weighed down by misery. Life is tough. That's what he keeps saying through the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is very difficult. Life is tough. And he says misery comes in verse 7 because people are ignorant of what will happen Think about the times that we've gotten ourselves in trouble. We don't look forward to the consequences, do we? We're very uh, short-sighted. If we don't look to the future and say, well, if I do this, this is a potential consequence. And so Solomon says that in verse 7. It's because we're ignorant of what will happen. And then he says, misery results from people practicing wickedness. And so he lays out the beginning of chapter 8, respond well to authority and live a wise life. And I put that little formula on your notes, and it says, so responding to author- properly to authority plus wise living equals no problems, right? Not really. We think, and we treat life like this formula. We say, well, if I do A and B, then C is supposed to happen. But it doesn't take you long to live very long to understand that when you do A and B, C doesn't always happen, That life is so unpredictable, that life doesn't follow these neat little formulas and these neat little equations. And so Solomon goes on, and he is going to help us to understand that in the rest of chapter 8. See, it's a theory of retribution, and much of the Old Testament is couched in this theology. It is, if I do A, then B is supposed to happen. If I do this, then God's supposed to do this. If I live this certain way, then this is supposed to happen. It's called the theory of retribution or cause and effect, if you will. That if I do this, then certainly this will happen. But we know that life is full of disappointments and life is full of things that don't turn out that way. We can do everything right and everything can still go wrong. 
We can do everything well, and everything ends up very badly. And that's what Solomon wants to help us understand. He has this 2020 view of life. He looks at it realistically, and he wants to help us in his wisdom understand how to make some sense out of this and, and really to grasp on some of these things. And so here's a few things that he gives us, some of his observations about life, and see if you don't agree and if you haven't observed these things as well. The first thing that he says is this, life is out of our control. Look what he says in verse 7. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has the power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw and applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. What he says is that life is out of our control. He says nobody can control the wind. Have you seen that hilarious video of Colorado? They were setting up an outdoor movie night, and they had all these air mattresses on this green, and this wind kicked up, and hundreds of air mattresses are airborne, and they're rolling down through the park. Nobody can control the wind. It just happens. Nobody can postpone the day of his death. Nobody can be discharged while in the midst of battle. You can leave, but you'll go AWOL, and then there'll be consequences for that. And then he says, even this leader to his own hurt, no one can escape the consequences of his wickedness. In verse 9, there is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Uh, not just leaders, but a parent who is overly authoritative and, uh, and oppressive, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt him someday when his kids don't want to be around him anymore. And so Solomon says, there's nothing we can control. Even though we try to control things, sometimes it turns around and it ends up uh, hurting us in the process. And so he says that he observed these things and all these things that were done under the sun. And if there's one thing that we've learned through the study of Ecclesiastes is life is out of our control. Life under the sun is out of our control. Over and over, he talks about that, that nobody knows the time of death. Death comes to everybody, rich and poor, the fool and the wise. It all happens, and we can't, we can't control it. But man, we love to control. And it unnerves us, and it makes us, it makes us anxious when we aren't in control. But Solomon, in his real-life observation, says, if you can understand this, that life is out of our control. Now, he didn't say you are out of your control. We are supposed to have self-control. I, I am supposed to be able, I control my mouth, what I say, and my actions. What he's not saying is everything is just out of my control. Well, why did you yell at me? Well, Solomon said, I'm out of my own control. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying life, right? General, those things out there. There's just, life is out of our control. In fact, way back in chapter one, he said, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. Even when I try to get all the smarts, it ends up at the end not really delivering what I wanted it to deliver. And so the very first thing he says, just like the wind and just like the, the, uh, the day of our death, we, we don't really have any control. So that's Observation number one. The second thing he observes is this. Life is not fair. It just isn't. We desire it to be. We want it to be. But it doesn't take us long to figure out that it really isn't. Look what he says starting in verse 10. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. 
When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Listen to what he says. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. It's futile. It's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. During World War II, Russia's unpredictable and illogical actions frequently threw Winston Churchill for a loop. On one occasion, he found himself once again confounded by the Soviet's surprising decision. And what he said in utter frustration was this. It's a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside of an enigma. And that's about as complicated as things get. And don't we intuitively think that about life? It's a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside of what? An enigma. It just doesn't make sense. I don't know why the things are going on that are going on. I don't know why people are doing what they're doing. I don't know why it's not turning out like I want it to turn out. It just is a mystery. And that's what Solomon's telling us in these few verses. Is it, yes, I've seen these things. You know, there are some enigmas in life that we just don't understand. The washing machine, for example. You put 12 pairs of matching socks into the washing machine, and 30 minutes later, you remove eight socks and none of them which match. It's an enigma. Lanes of traffic. No matter which lane of traffic you get in, it goes slower than all of the other lanes of traffic. The same at the grocery store. It doesn't matter which aisle you get in, it always ends up being the slowest one. Or how about the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? It never falls on the linoleum floor. It always falls on the carpet. And how much jelly and peanut butter spray out of the sandwich is directly linked to the price of the carpet. It's an enigma. You take it to the mechanic, your car, it's making this funny noise and it's it's doing something crazy. And the mechanic looks at it, takes it for a test drive and is baffled, wondering why you brought it in. You drive it out of the shop and on the way to work, it stalls and you have to call the tow truck. It's an enigma. Here's another enigma of life. Your kids don't have to go to the bathroom for hours while they're playing on their electronic devices. But the minute you say, kids, it's time to leave, or kids, it's time for dinner, all of a sudden they disappear because they all have to go to the bathroom. An enigma of life. It's a mystery and a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. And God leaves us this mystery, right? This thing in life. And we say, God, shouldn't you only do good things? Like, aren't only good things coming from you? And then we are struggling and we are maybe discouraged because we're looking at a life just like Solomon did. And we say, Lord, life is not fair. Solomon noted a couple things. He said, I saw that wickedness was not always punished. And he was deeply troubled by the issue of injustice. He's already talked about that in Ecclesiastes a few times. He looks out and he already has said the world isn't fair. The justice isn't always served. And, and sometimes there is injustice. And he just, he says, he's looking out in his 2020 observation. And he says, this, this is life. It doesn't make, mean it's right. But he says, this is how it is. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, he already said, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. In Ecclesiastes 4.1, he said, I looked out. There was oppression under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Those in charge seem to get away with everything, and those underneath have no recourse and no way to get out from under that. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, I, I saw this. The wicked were buried. Those who used to come and go to church, they looked like the good guy, right? But they were wicked and they were then praised after they had died. It's amazing about a burial, what it'll do. It will, it's, a, it's remarkable what a nice funeral can do for a bad guy. All of a sudden, he's the most honorable person in the world. A, a, it's a, an honorable burial. It's amazing what it can do for a dishonorable life. I just wish for once somebody would stand up at a funeral and tell the truth. Wouldn't that be great? This guy was a jerk. He cheated. He stole from me. He lied. He wasn't there for his kids. He couldn't do his job right. Thank you. Next, right? We don't do that. And so Solomon says, this is like, un, it, there's this unfairness to it. You know why we don't do that? Because we don't want them doing that to us, <laughs> right? We're like, if I do that for everybody else, they're going to get up and tell me what a wonderful person I am. But what Solomon says is, I looked and it's amazing what a burial will do. He lamented the fact in verse 12, he says, a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time. I know that it will go better with those who fear God. He says, it's, it's remarkable what happens. A hundred crimes. And what happens is the evil is buried with them. We forget. And all we remember is that they were just an awesome person. He says this failure to carry out this retribution, what it causes, it leads to more wrongdoing. In fact, in verse 29 of chapter 7, we looked at last week, he says, God created mankind, but they had gone in search of many schemes. Now, Solomon believed that life is far better for God-fearing people, but it doesn't go so well for the wicked people, yet he noticed the contradictions. In verse 14, he says, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. I mean, talk about your 2020 observation of life, that life isn't fair. Have you been there? Have you experienced that? Have you got what the wicked deserve and seen how that is not fair in life? And he notices these contradictions. You know, why is it that a loving Christian family traveling down the highway gets hit head on by a drunk driver and they get killed and the drunk driver walks away with barely a scratch? In those times, we're scratching our heads and we're saying, Lord, how is this? Why is this? It, it doesn't seem fair. Why is it that organized crime gets rich on porn sites and drugs and prostitution and illegally gambling and, and, and you can barely make your ends meet? Why is it that it looks like those who are wicked have no troubles and they seem to have money and they seem to have fame and they seem to have friends and here I am, I can't even make my paycheck last a week to the next paycheck. And so Solomon says, listen, I've seen this. And here's, I, I know that there's this meaningless, there's this futility to it. And all he's saying is, I look out and I see this 2020 observation of life, and it isn't fair. I'm telling you, it isn't fair. 
So I'm with you, and I see that with you. And so we see a struggling Solomon. So if you've ever struggled in your life with with just the fairness and the way things are turning out, you're in good company. Solomon struggled with that as well. And the key to his thinking is something that may help us as well. Look back in verse 10. There's two things and two statements that he makes in this passage. He said, Then too, I saw the wicked buried, or I have seen... And then in verse 12, he says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes will live a long time, I know that it will go better. Do you see the two phrases that Solomon uses? In one instance, he says, I saw. And in the other instance, he says, I know. And isn't that the conflict? The things we know conflict with the things we see. That's where Solomon is. And so if you're struggling with the, with, the, with the unfairness, that's where the conflict comes in. We say, Lord, I know you are good. I know you take care of your people. I know that you love me. But here's what I see. I see hurt and heartache and I'm lonely and I feel abandoned. So what I know and what I see don't line up. And that's the conflict that Solomon has. And have you ever been there as well? I have. We all have. Between what we know and between what we see. Solomon says, I, Lord, I know the wicked are punished. I know that. But here's what I see. What I see is they're not punished. In fact, it's the righteous who are getting what the wicked deserve. Lord, I know that it goes better when I live by wisdom. I know that. But here's what I see. I live by wisdom. And here's the fool. And he may live longer than me. And that's where the tension is. And so the fairness of life would be when they both match up. What I know and what I see, right? But the unfairness is what I know and what I see, they don't match up. And so Solomon's back to this place of wrestling where he's saying, here is good ethical behavior, but it's not receiving a good reward. And if we're honest, can't we say that we've all struggled with that? I mean, we do personally we, uh, 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 things that happen to family and friends, things that we see uh, in the world, we just say, Lord, this, this, this just isn't fair. And Solomon says it's a conflict between what we know to be good and right and between what we see. Even though we see 2020, sometimes it isn't enough because of what we know. We know this, but we see this and it doesn't line up. There's a guy who went to the eye doctor to get his eyes tested. He said, doctor, will I be able to read after wearing glasses? Yes, of course, said the doctor. Why wouldn't you be able to read? And the guy said, oh, how nice. I have been illiterate my entire life. Listen, being able to see clearly doesn't mean that you'll be able to do the thing that you want to do. Being able to see clearly doesn't mean that it it helps us because we have this tension between what we know and what what we see, and we say life is not fair. You know, kids say that. Uh, Kids will come to you, and uh, older siblings will get a privilege. They'll get to stay up later on a school night than the younger. And what does the younger sibling, what invariably do they say? It's not fair. They want the same treatment. They want to be treated like their older brothers and sisters, right? And so we see this disparity between how I'm being treated in my experience in life and what I know to be true, and Solomon is there. He says, I've seen it, and here's what I know, and there's a conflict. So what do we do? Just give up? 
No, not at all. In fact, Solomon, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, said, here's the life worth living. You see it clearly, but in spite of what you see, you still enjoy it. This is uh, number three. He says, here's my 2020 observation of life. So he says, I've seen all these things. I've seen the disparity between the, the wicked and the, the righteous. They don't get what they deserve. But look what he says in 15. So he says, so I command, I'm recommending to you. Here's what I'm commanding. The enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in this toil all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. So what's Solomon's solution? And this is where sometimes the book of Ecclesiastes can seem depressing if we're not looking at it properly. Solomon says, here is life, and it's kind of depressing, and it's not fair, but here's what I'm telling you to do. Enjoy it anyway. Who gave us our lives? God. Who created life? God. It's that, it's that carpe diem, right? It's that thing to, to seize the moment, to make the most of every day. And so seeing these contradictions, Solomon says, I want you to enjoy life. And we're like, man, Solomon, I thought you were going to tell me to get therapy or do something. No, what he says is you enjoy life. And here's what he says all throughout Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2.24 it's, there's nothing better that a person should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Ecclesiastes 3.13, everybody should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. Ecclesiastes 5.18, I've seen that it's good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil. And Ecclesiastes 5.19, God says he's given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoyment. This is his lot. So Solomon's solution is what? Is to enjoy life. We can't control or predict adversity or prosperity. You know, sometimes we think, Lord, if you could just let me know that something bad's going to happen, I, I could prepare for it. Do you know why God doesn't let us know about bad things that are going to happen in the future? What if God came to you and says, you know, three years from now, you are going to get cancer. What would you do the next three years? Worry. And you'd be fearful. And you'd be anxious. And so God doesn't tell us the future because he doesn't want us worrying and being anxious before we get there. He doesn't let us know what's going to happen because what we're doing is we're borrowing trouble from the future and bringing it in today. That's why we don't know the future. And praise God for that. But we don't know when it's going to happen. We can't predict life. And so what Solomon says is that each day's joy should be received as a gift from God. All this what does he say in verse 15? The enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun. That's planet Earth. He says, here's what I want you to do. I see all these things that are happening, but I want you to enjoy life. Do you know some people are dying while they're waiting to live? Listen, life is more than waiting around until you check out. It's got to be more. Because we have this great gift from God, the breath in our lungs and the life that we leave and live and lead. And Solomon says in verse 15, he says, joy will accompany them in their toil. Here's what he says is you enjoy life. You you find enjoyment and then joy will be your traveling partner. What he says is this. First, you enjoy life. And then you will find joy. And what we do is, 
we are waiting to find joy so we can enjoy life. And Solomon says, you got it backwards. You enjoy life, and then you're going to find joy. Don't wait for the joy to come, because in the miserable state you're in right now, you're never going to find it. So you need to start enjoying, and then guess what's your traveling partner? Joy comes along for the ride. Eat and drink. What does that mean? It means the fellowship. It means relationships. It means sitting down with, with people and, and, and laughing and having a, uh, just having the joy of life. He says joy will accompany you in your toil, in, your, in that misery of life. Solomon says don't wait for the toil to go away. Don't wait till you retire to enjoy life. Don't wait till you're not working to enjoy life. Don't wait until there's no toil. Because listen, there will always be toil. There'll always be things that we need to do. There'll always be expectations. There'll always be a, 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 a to-do list. All those things. And Solomon says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy it first, and then joy will come. What are things in your life that you can enjoy in the midst of all the stuff that's going on? Well, look around you. There's some folks around you right now that you can enjoy. You can enjoy nature. You can enjoy art. You can enjoy being with people. You can enjoy all those things. Life was given to us, Ecclesiastes reminds us, is to enjoy. And the problem is, if you're waiting to find the joy, you'll never find it. Joy will be your, will be your traveling partner when you do that first. Commend the enjoyment of life. You say, well, there's really not much in my life to enjoy. Then you need to get a new life. And it doesn't mean shipping off somewhere. It means in the place where you are now, in the place where you are now, with the people you know now, in the job you have now, in the neighborhood you have now, in the house you have now, with the health that you have now, with the kids that you have now, with all those things you have now, you, are, you need to find some way to enjoy it. And you know where most enjoyment gets blocked up? Right here. We either don't want to, we don't know how to, we always look at the glass half empty instead of half full, and we don't even thank God that we have a glass to begin with. So Solomon says, yes, life is not fair. Yes, life is miserable. Yes, there are these things in life that happen, but it's up to you to enjoy it. It's not up to somebody else. I can't make Christy happy. She can't make me happy. I can certainly make her miserable. I've done that on many occasions. It's not up to somebody else to be my happiness, to make my happiness. What does Solomon say? I commend your enjoyment of life. You find the things to enjoy. And then what happens? Joy will accompany you in your toil. And so we understand that life is out of our control. Those things, life isn't fair. And Solomon says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy life. Listen, don't wait until you're dead. <laughs> do it now. You know the thing you were, you're going to do later? You're never going to get to it. You need to do it now. We're going to take that trip someday. Guess what? It'll never happen. Someday never comes. What does he say? Solomon says, enjoy it now. You, you find a way to enjoy life and all of its misery, and then you will find joy in your toil. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Seize the day. Seize the moment. And then joy will be your traveling companion. The last thing he says is this. Life cannot be fully understood. He says in verse 16, 
when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that's done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Nobody can really fully comprehend it. That's why it doesn't make sense sometimes. That's why it's a mystery. That's why it's an enigma. That's why it doesn't really make sense. Is because we aren't God and we can't understand it all. Solomon says what? Even the wise claim they know, but they really can't comprehend it. Have you noticed, um, and I just started picking up on this uh, recently in the last few months, have you noticed how much of the headlines we read is based on guessing? There are no definitives. The headline news. I I want you this week to look for these words. May, could be, may cause, potential. You look for those words in all the headline news story, and if you find those words, I don't want you to read it. Why? Because they're doing what Solomon says. The wise claim they know, but they can't fully understand it. Here's some headlines just recently. There appears, appears to be some correlation between losing an hour's sleep every spring and certain types of accidents or health problems. <gasps> Oh no, I'm going to die the day after daylight saving time. What happens is we are fearful. What does it say? It appears. Do they know? No. They're just saying one cranky guy got in an accident because he had to get up early because he stayed up too late the night before. He can't do math. Which means if I'm losing an, if I lose an hour of sleep, I got to go to bed an hour early because he's too dumb to do math. Now it appears that daylight savings time is killing us. How many hours are in a day? Tell me. 24. How many hours are in the day of daylight saving time when we turn the clocks? No, 23. How many? Right? No, that's what we say. Remember what God has made crooked, we can't straighten out. So it appears. Here's some more headlines. It appears um, NASA discovers potentially habitable planet. How many times has NASA discovered a potentially habitable planet? Too many to count. Potential, right? You'll never hear this story again. There'll never be a follow-up where they say, ha, we were wrong. And they just, they just throw it out there. How about this one? The climate crisis could make it more dangerous to play outdoor sports. There goes football, soccer, everything. But what did, you, what did they say? Could make it, right? A germ-free environment could trigger leukemia, scientists suggest. I want you to be critical thinkers, and when you see could, may, have potential, it would be amazing what's eliminated. And that's what Solomon says is life, we can't fully understand it. We think we're so smart, and some guy somewhere had possible causation for something else, and now all of a sudden we're supposed to change all of our habits. Don't buy it. Solomon says what? Life can't be fully understood. That's because as much as we think we're in control, we really live under the illusion that we can predict the future. And we really can't. Solomon acknowledges all these contradictions. And what he says is all that God has done and all those things under the sun, what? Are synonymous. God has done all these things and we really can't comprehend it. Isaiah 55, 9 says this. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Listen, there's just some things about life that we will not understand. And if somebody tells you they have it all figured out, you need to run. (laughs) 
Because they don't. There's something they're not seeing correctly. A woman walks into an optician to return a pair of glasses, and she had purchased them for her husband a week before, and the assistant asks, what seems to be the problem? The woman replies, I'm returning these glasses I bought for my husband. He's still not seeing things my way. I wonder if that's us and God, right? Instead of trying to understand God, we're just mad at him because he's not seeing things our way. And in our frustration and in our confusion, it's just that it's not so much that we're confused, but we just, we just don't want to see things God's way. We want him to see things our way. Now, Solomon was listening in the Old Testament, was writing in the Old Testament. He had a revealed, accurate portrayal of God, but he did not have a full revelation that we have in Jesus. Because Solomon, even when he saw clearly, he still was left without a satisfactory answer. And so what it does is it should promote faith that only God knows the beginning from the end. Solomon has already says that. But here's a couple of things that we know about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. The gospel gives meaning to an unfair life. Listen, the gospel is the answer to why things are not fair. Solomon said, I saw all that God has done. And we see all that's, that's done, right? And we can see what God has done in Jesus, but we also think, see things about life under the sun. And But here's what Jesus does. Jesus treats pain and suffering as meaningful realities of the human condition. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to be a human being. And he came to what? Offer his life as a sacrifice. And so what Jesus did is he came down to deal with the meaningless realities of life. The pain and those, those confusions that we have. All the stuff that doesn't make sense. Jesus came down to deal with that. And so rather than have us reach up to escape, what does God do? God comes down to help us to cope and to help us find meaning and to help us find purpose in our misery. You know, there's really no purpose in suffering without Jesus. If there is no God, if we are all here by random chance, there is no reason or purpose or meaning in suffering. But because Jesus came, we can have meaning and purpose in our suffering because his suffering was moving on to a greater end the sacrifice and forgiveness of our sins. John eleven thirty five. here's your memory verse for the week. Jesus wept. You got it. John eleven thirty five. why was Jesus crying? Jesus was outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus had been sick. Jesus had been told four days already that Lazarus was, or days before that Lazarus was going to be, uh, was sick. You need to come. He didn't go. Lazarus died. And when Jesus went, he stood outside the tomb and he wept. Why? Because his heart was moved of the pain and the suffering that's been inflicted upon the world because of sin and because of the brokenness of this world because of sin. Jesus wept not just for his friend Lazarus, but Jesus wept at least for all of us who have to pass under the shadow of death. It's not the way it was supposed to be, but we messed it up. He cried real tears because our pain is real. And here is what Jesus did. Romans 3, 25 and 26 is on your notes. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this. Listen, here's why he did this. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Now, you need to get these two phrases. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That little phrase is huge. That God was both just and the one who justifies. You know why the gospel brings meaning to an unfair life? It's because God in his justice cannot let sin go unpunished. He is, God is ultimately fair. He says, here's a sin, here's a payment that needs to be made for that sin. God can never be charged with with giving the wicked what the righteous deserve and the righteous what the wicked deserve. People can, but not God. And so God, in his justice, says, I cannot not punish sin because that's who I am. It's an infraction against my character, against my being. And so what's God's option? God's option then is to make payment for sin. And what's payment for sin? It's our very lives that we pay through death and eternity separated from him. But God had another solution. He sends Jesus. And so that phrase, he was just and he was the one justified. He is the justifier, meaning he came to earth as Jesus and Jesus took the penalty of our sin onto him. So God not only remained just, his justice, but he also took the pain on himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to love God all the more. He's not holding me responsible or he's not giving me the penalty for my sin. It was placed on Jesus. And so God's ultimate solution was he is the ultimate fair God. He is just And he also provided the payment for the justice that our sin required by sending Jesus. So he can maintain his justice, but he can also free us from the penalty of sin by placing that on Jesus. Listen, the gospel gives meaning to an unfair life. The gospel undergirds what life is. When you and I stand before God, we do not want to say, Lord, please be fair with me. Lord, please be fair. What do we want? We want mercy. We want grace. We don't want God to be fair with us. And so in this broken world, when we see the unfairness, what we are to be reminded of, that's how God treats me. I am glad God's not fair with me because I would be dead and so would you. And God doesn't give fairness, but he gives mercy because he's both the one who's just and the justifier. The gospel shows us that both suffering is real and the sacrifice needed to alleviate it is real. At the cross, Jesus paid an infinite cost to show us our infinite value. Do you know how you determine the value of something? By its cost. By the price tag that's on it. And so you have a car, you have a a, a $10,000 car, and a $110,000 car, which one's worth more? The $110,000 because of the price that was paid for it. Do you know what that says about us? Jesus paid an infinite price for you. Your value is infinite because Jesus died for you. And it gives meaning to an otherwise unfair life. Without the gospel, there really is no meaning. It doesn't make sense. And that's where Solomon was. Solomon didn't have the benefit of knowing Jesus like we do. And it, it didn't quite make sense. And here's what happens when we trust Jesus. When we trust Jesus, we become the enigma. We are the riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. Here's how it works. 
in all this craziness that Solomon just said, in all the things that I've seen, I've had this 2020 uh, outlook on life and I see the injustice, the unfairness and all of those things. And when, in our lives, we understand that too. And ultimately the unfairness of the cross when Jesus, who never sinned, paid for our sins so that I can be declared not guilty, then I become the enigma because I don't have to fear. I can live life knowing that God's uh, saving grace has been applied to me. And so when I go through troubles, and Solomon says it a couple times in chapter 8, that we're weighed down by misery, and people say, how can you be so happy? How can you have so much peace? How do you find the joy in your life? Don't you know your life is a mess? <laughs> Don't you know your life is falling apart? How can you have peace? How can you have strength? How can you have joy? Do you know what just happened? You became the enigma. They can't understand you now. It started out that we can't understand life because it's a mystery. But God sent Jesus and now we receive Jesus. And then all of a sudden we become the mystery. How cool is that? People are like, what are you on? I'm like, I'm smoking a little Jesus. It's great. I got the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how I find the strength to get up, even though life is weighing me down, even though life is very hard, even though I see all this stuff, I am now the enigma. And that is a great testimony to others when you are the mystery. What is wrong with you? You're smiling. Yeah, I cry a lot, but you know, I also smile because I know that God loves me and my sin has been paid for and I'm in Jesus. And no matter what anybody does to me, I know whose I am and where I'm going. That's the enigma. Don't you want to be an enigma? You trust Jesus. In life, Solomon says, I command the enjoyment. Of, how can you enjoy life? Don't you want to know what's going on? Everything around us is falling down, burning up. Every, yes, but I have Jesus. And he's been around a lot longer than the stuff I see. And he is the one who's sovereign. He is the one who's in charge. He is the one who's in control. And because I am his and he is mine, I've got nothing to fear. Man, you are weird. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. We are to be strangers and foreigners in this life as we go. You see, when we trust Jesus, we become the enigma. You can see your life, and only you know your life in 2020. But do you know Jesus in that? Have you become the mystery that when people see you, they say, what do you have that helps you? you say, Jesus, it's him. He's the one who said he'd never leave me or forsake me. He's the one who gives me strength. He is the one who paid the penalty for my sins. He is the one who loves me with an undying love. He is the one who says that I am valuable and worthy because of the infinite price that he paid. What else do I need? Solomon says, I commend you to enjoy life. Listen, we can hardly enjoy life without Jesus sometimes. He gives us the perspective. He gives us the eternal outlook. He gives us the view of life. That if all we see is life under the sun, it is depressing. It is hopeless. It is the pits. But we know one above the sun who came down to live under the sun so that we too can have life above the sun while we're living under the sun. Eternal life starts now. I don't wait until I'm dying to enjoy eternal life. If you are in Christ, eternal life is now. 
Death is just a blip in your future. That's all it is. But we're in eternal life now. Have you trusted Jesus? Maybe you've had these 2020 observations and you're just a little unsure today, maybe a little worried, a little anxious. But to know in the midst of all that, it's the gospel that gives it meaning. It's Jesus who does that. Would you please stand and we're going to pray. Father, oh, we have tried to figure it all out. Father, we, we just want life all figured out in a nice little thing. And Father, we know that we have been disappointed and disillusioned many, many times because it didn't work out the way we expected or wanted it to. And Father, it didn't work out for Jesus, the one who didn't sin. But Father, we are grateful that he took the penalty for us. So, Father, may we be the mystery in our lives as we trust him, as we enjoy life under the sun, even with all of its difficulties, because it's a gift that you have given us. God, renew our minds, change our attitudes, give us courage. We thank you for the peace and the love and the joy that you give us all because of Jesus. So, Father, over these next few moments, we really just want to surrender all that we have to you to get that 2020 view of life and in the midst of all that to really trust Jesus more fully than when we first came in. God, we thank you for life. We thank you for the life we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.